listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belabored Episode 258. It's also episode one of a new series. For the next five episodes, we will bring you stories about the long-term impacts of the pandemic on the way we work, the way workers organize, and the labor movement as a whole. Our first installment of the series is a conversation with Kelly Benson, Senior Mental Health Coordinator at Alina Abbott Northwestern Hospital in Minnesota. Before we get started, we'd like to pause and thank everyone who's kept the show going for the past nine years of bringing you labor news and views from around the world. Labor journalism, as you may have heard last episode, might be making a comeback, but it's still slow going and the pay rates are lousy, so we count on what you all can kick in to keep us going. We've made it a point not to paywall anything so that all of our work is accessible to all of the workers we interview and discuss, whether or not they can afford to pay. So if you can, you have some extra money coming in, maybe your union contract just kicked in and you got a raise. It really does help us if you can go to patreon.com slash belabored and sign up to be a monthly supporter of our work. We do have some cool perks in there. We have tote bags. We have art. It's really great. Thanks for all of your support. And now the news. Continuing a string of union victories at big retail and tech brands, a second Apple store has formed a union. This time, the workers at the Penn Center Apple Store in Oklahoma City voted 56 to 32 to unionize in a National Labor Relations Board election. They will be represented by the Communication Workers of America, which has also been busy organizing workers at Verizon, The New York Times, and AT&T in recent years. The first Apple Store union win was back in June in Towson, Maryland, with a large majority of nearly 100 workers voting to unionize with the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. According to the New York Times, the workers at the Oklahoma City store were primarily concerned with promotions, hiring, remote work, and other issues regarding managerial decisions. Generally, they seem to be more focused on the quality and security of their jobs, as well as corporate transparency, than on their pay. In recent years, Apple has raised wages significantly for its retail workers, and its most recent raises might in part have been an effort to stave off union organizing drives. There's now a starting wage of about $22 an hour for store workers. One of the inspirations for the drive was the hashtag Apple II movement, which emerged in the midst of the pandemic as Apple corporate employees took to Slack and social media to air allegations of various workplace abuses, ranging from sexual harassment to discrimination. The Oklahoma City workers set up an organizing committee last September after they learned that workers at an Atlanta Apple store were also trying to organize. The Atlanta store ultimately withdrew its election bid, but the Oklahoma City workers soldiered on, braving meeting after meeting with supervisors who were aiming to dissuade them from unionizing and who were telling them all about the supposed negative consequences of organizing. The management also threatened to withhold benefits from workers if they unionized, according to CWA. This type of anti-union pressure led CWA to bring unfair labor practice charges against Apple, which eventually led to a formal complaint issued by the National Labor Relations Board earlier this month. The Apple workers were undeterred, though. Tech expert Charity Lassiter said in a statement announcing the union that the workers hoped, quote, to ensure the soul of Apple, the workers would have a fair say in our working conditions and an opportunity to create an equitable environment for our team. Organizing has not only brought us closer together, but it has also empowered all of us to fight hard for the respect and justice every worker deserves on the job, unquote. 
The union is part of Code CWA, or the Campaign to Organize Digital Employees. It focuses on organizing workers in the tech, gaming, and digital industries, and is also partnered with the Alphabet Workers Union and the new union at Activision Blizzard's Raven Software QA department. Apple Store workers are an interesting case study, though, since they operate in the nexus of retail and tech labor, and their victory shows that digital workers encompass a lot more than technicians and software developers, and that even in a company as giant as Apple, workers at every level share the desire for transparency, corporate accountability, and equity on the job. The British strike wave continues to build steam as it appears there will be yet another prime minister, Rishi Sunak, another one from the Thatcherite wing of the Conservative Party. But the big news this week was not Rishi Sunak. It was the massive national strike ballot of university faculty, members of the university and college union, who not only passed the voting threshold necessary to take nationwide strike action, but got over 80% yes votes. As Joe Grady, friend of the show and general secretary of the UCU, tweeted, Sunak is now the prime minister. On the day we have just announced a historic strike ballot across every university, it is worth saying the UCU have more branches than Sunak got nominations to be PM. We also have more members than votes trust got to be PM. So I think that means Joe Grady's prime minister now. Anyway, that's over 70,000 staff at 150 universities around Britain voting for national strike action. As the UCU is part of the Enough is Enough coalition, we might expect to see some of those strikes line up with other major union actions. As Emiliano Melino at the Week in Work newsletter pointed out, the UCU vote was just the beginning of a period that sees the conclusion of ballots covering around a million public sector workers in Britain. That includes not just the UCU's 70,000, but the historic vote of 300,000 NHS nurses at the Royal College of Nursing, 150,000 civil servants in Scotland who are members of PCS, the RMT's 40,000 members renewing their strike mandate, and later in the month, 400,000 members of Unison who also work at the NHS, and ambulance service members who are part of GMB. Other strikes are continuing across the country, including BT, which you heard about on this show recently, and notable strikes at Al Jazeera, at a coffin manufacturing facility, and of the people who make corn, the vegetarian meat substitute. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's spelled with a Q, guys. Corn. Later this month, we'll see more strike ballots launching, including 300,000 teachers in the National Education Union and a first-ever strike ballot for the head teachers union, which is separate from the NEU. Looking at all of that, it's no wonder Boris Johnson dropped out of the race to return to his old job. Would you want to be a right-wing prime minister coming into this strike wave? If you've ever sung along with the soundtrack of an iconic film or gotten goosebumps when watching a famous dance scene on screen, you know the work of a music supervisor. The music supervisor is one of the critical members of a film's production team, responsible for coordinating and curating the music for a project. Their duties range from securing the rights to songs used in a show or movie to overseeing the creation of original film music. They also do the soundtracks for video games. Their role has expanded in recent years as the relationship between popular music and television and film production has evolved, and the industry has recognized some music supervisors by giving Emmys for outstanding music supervision. But as indispensable as their craft is, their jobs have historically been non-union, and they have not had the same protections and benefits as other craft workers in the business. That may change very soon, though. 
the music supervisors of Netflix have filed for a union election. Following the company's refusal to voluntarily recognize the union after a majority of the music supervisors currently or recently employed by Netflix sought to form a union with IATSE. IATSE represents technical, artisanal, and craft workers in entertainment industries of the U.S. and Canada. The workers are essentially seeking the same benefits, labor protections, and standards as other craft workers in the television and film fields, which, according to IATSE, includes, quote, being treated fairly and equitably compared to their unionized co-workers, gaining access to industry health care and retirement plans, standardizing pay rates to tamp down on discrimination and pay disparities, addressing structures that enable studios to delay workers' pay for months at a time, having a seat at the table to negotiate with employers in good faith, and winning an enforceable and codified union contract, unquote. Back in June, according to IATSE, about 75% of music supervisors across the industry signed cards to unionize, but the Industry Association Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, or AMPTP, refused to recognize that effort voluntarily as well. So this Netflix vote is the next phase in seeking to formally establish the union at the largest studio within the AMPTP. Still, getting music supervisors on an equal footing with other craft workers in the industry won't necessarily resolve all their issues. Last year, as we reported on Belabored, an overwhelming majority of IATSE members in television and film production voted to authorize a strike after contract talks with the AMPTP stalled. Many workers were deeply frustrated at the time with extremely long hours and unstable schedules, as well as persistently low wages for entry-level employees. Many workers remained dissatisfied with the agreements that eventually came out of those talks. In the case of the basic agreement that covers 13 West Coast locals of IATSE, the agreement passed through an indirect delegate vote, but was voted down by a slight majority of the members. So unionizing music supervisors will undoubtedly be a win, but being a film or television craft worker is still a hard slog with or without a union contract. If music supervisors end up joining IATSE, the union will have that much more clout and rank and file anger behind it the next time it returns to the bargaining table with the big studios. Speaking of strikes, last week there's another general strike across Palestine. Al Jazeera reports, quote, All major Palestinian political groups and institutions throughout the West Bank and East Jerusalem, including the ruling Fatah party, announced a general strike on Wednesday night. The General Union of Palestinian Teachers said the strike would involve all schools and the education ministry. All Palestinian universities in the West Bank also joined the strike. End quote. The strike was called and endorsed by this wide swath of groups after a crackdown on a massive refugee camp, as Israel conducted a manhunt for a Palestinian man, Uday al Tamimi, who it said had shot an Israeli soldier at a checkpoint near the camp. After the 12 day search, which ended in a shootout, Israeli forces killed Tamimi, prompting widespread outrage and the declaration of protests and the strike. While it's been hard to get good information in English on this strike and its effectiveness due to the tendency of Western media to ignore Palestine, we do know that it's part of escalating civil resistance, including localized general strikes against Israeli military and police violence, and part of a broader campaign in the West Bank that has been building to something observers are calling a new form of struggle. Mariam Barghouti and Yamna Patel at Mondoweiss note, quote, Palestinian resistance ranges between armed resistance and popular unarmed resistance, which has expanded to the engagement of Palestinians in the diaspora and in exile. In this way, Israel's fragmentation of Palestinian identity continues to be challenged and interrupted, end quote. If you want to hear more about this, last year we spoke with researcher Ria Al-Sanaa about the strikes then and historically as part of Palestinian civil society's resistance to occupation and colonization. You can find that in our archive at descentmagazine.org slash belabored from May 2021. 
And now for our main conversation and to kick off our series on workers in the pandemic. Healthcare workers are, of course, some of the first people we think of when we think of the impact of COVID-19, but the mental health pandemic that has come alongside the virus is less often discussed, and for mental health care workers, the two issues are deeply intertwined. Kelly Benson, Senior Mental Health Coordinator at Alina Abbott Northwestern Hospital in Minneapolis and a member of SEIU Healthcare Minnesota in Iowa, joined us this week. Benson tells us about how her work has changed since the pandemic began, the ongoing struggle of mental health workers for fair pay, safe staffing and support on the job, and its toll on their own mental health. Can I get you to start off by telling us about you and what you do for work? Yeah, for sure. So my name is Kelly Benson, and I work in child and adolescent inpatient psychiatric care. I've been working um, in the field for about seven years, but five the last five years have been with the current company at Abbott Northwestern Hospital in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Great. So yeah, um, tell us, I guess, like, how did you get into this field? So I actually was a patient when I was 16 years old. Um, I'm now 30 and I chose, you know, in high school to kind of pursue psychology and through college, um, continued to pursue it and giving back to the community that helped me when I was in my time of crisis was something that I really wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And so I guess we're talking about COVID. Um, tell us what it was like doing the work you do during the past couple of years of pandemic. Yeah. So um, COVID had quite a big impact, um, especially with being in hospital in the healthcare industry. When COVID started kind of amping up and becoming the bigger problem that it became, we had a lot of high acuity patients. So patients that maybe need a little bit more care, um, maybe need an individual staff um, to work with them throughout the day in addition to the other staff on the unit. And so we we also saw a lot more um, not necessarily just more mental illness, but maybe the severity and intensity of it um, has gotten gotten worse. And that comes from the trauma um, of the COVID pandemic, the being isolated, having your routines, you know, sort of scattered and not having anything to kind of follow. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, um, could you say more about the impact that you've seen on on your sort of younger patients? Because I think we've talked a lot about working age people and we've talked a lot about kids in the context of schools and whether they should be open or not, but not really about like what they experienced and how that maybe caused some trauma. So a lot of kids, you know, come in already with trauma. So there's trauma from their even earlier childhood, um, trauma that was unrelated to the pandemic. And then when the pandemic came in, there's that trauma on top of it. So maybe some lost a parent or a grandparent or someone close to them that they loved. Um, and, you know, just the, the combination of all those things kind of led to just, you know, struggling more, struggling more in general. Um, kids have a harder time in school, have a harder time focusing, you know, in trauma like that, especially when it happens to a community, it can really embed itself within that community. 
and cause a lot of issues, um, especially for someone dealing with a mental health crisis. There's less opportunity for access to resources. You know, things where telehealth became such a big thing. And um, then you have, you know, all these people kind of needing therapy and stuff and not being able to get those resources as readily as prior to COVID. So we'll have quite a few kids um, that just aren't getting the services they need soon enough and are having to wait um, to receive mental health care, which, you know, mental health does not, mental illness does not wait. So. Right. Yeah. I've, I've spoken to folks before about this, that, that people were not getting access to things because obviously um, hospitals were places people were avoiding and, and things like that, but also that may be because of all the other crises going on. People were missing symptoms and signs. Mm -hmm. Yep. So in terms of how this affected the workers, right? Like tell us about how that affected again all of you and, and your mental health, yours personally and and your coworkers and the folks that you see every day. Yeah. Um so we have had a significant amount of turnover, um, even staff that are coming into the field and leaving pretty much right away because um, you know, since COVID and even before, but really since COVID, the job has been been difficult, been stressful. Um, and on top of those things, you know, we, our employer took away our 401k match, our tuition reimbursement, you know, took away raises for a year and then lowered our PTO accrual all during this first part of COVID. So there was that impact as well for staff that, you know, we're not getting those benefits that we, we wanted to see. And especially during such a difficult time for everybody. Right. Yeah. What was their excuse for doing that? Um, you know, they didn't really give us an excuse. They kind of just told us, you know, this is what's going to happen for the PTO accrual. They told us there was a mistake in the system for everybody. And apparently we we're earning too much. But a lot of it comes down to those cost cutting measures. So you'll see the papers and you'll see um, how Alina maybe use cost cutting measures, but they aren't going to mention those cost-cutting measures. Those are more of the secretive ones. Yeah. Alina is the overarching hospital chain. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so were they, I guess, yeah. Did you hear about sort of budget cuts being necessary before the pandemic? Was this pressure on already or did they sort of use the moment of COVID to slide it all through? Um, It really did seem like they used the moment of COVID and I'm sure there were financial issues just with you know, COVID impacting healthcare industries. Um, But it really was kind of right in that first year, 2020, where all these, you know, cuts started happening and different things started happening with um, our job, what we're being asked to do. You know, we were one of the first wave of people to get um, the COVID vaccine because Mm -hmm. we we also work down in the ED, the emergency department in the behavioral suite, um, so there's a lot more exposure there. You have people just kind of coming in um, and it, you know, there's a lot of exposure. So there's a lot of heavy things that kind of just started off the COVID um, pandemic. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of um, what Naomi Klein writes about in the shock doctrine, right? It's like, while everybody is so busy fighting the pandemic, they are just like, oh, by the way, we're cutting your wages. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, since then, we've seen Alina spend quite a bit of money. So 
um, it, it's been hard because, you know, those wages and those um, benefits, they aren't paid back, you know. So it's just kind of that loss that we have to sit with. Um, and then, you know, through the union and through bargaining, we've been trying for a little bit of a higher wage just to deal with inflation. Understandable. So, right. Tell us about the the organizing campaign and how that got started. So especially after that first, the 2020 year, kind of going into March 2021, um, there was a lot of stuff we were being asked to do, kind of like, you know, the high risk of exposure and then having those benefits cut really pushed a lot of people to say, hey, this isn't fair and why can they do that to us? And so being non-contract um, leaves us vulnerable to that. And we decided that we were not going to be further vulnerable as this pandemic um, progressed. So, you know, there was a couple of us that had talked about it. Um, no one had really made an effort, but at one point last year, maybe summer, um, I had a connection with someone at Fairview and Fairview was in their process of voting to unionize. So getting in contact with their organizer and kind of getting us on board, making a committee to kind of help with this vote. Yeah. Um, and so, Give us a little bit, I guess, of, of what it was like trying to organize a union on top of all the work you're already doing. And I imagine the exhaustion you were already feeling. Yeah, it, it is quite a bit of work, which I um, I would say I probably did not know that at the time. <laughs> um, but it has been good work. Yeah, I think um, it's so interesting and I guess also not surprising to me, but yet still surprising that like, there's been so much organizing in healthcare. Strikes maybe don't surprise me as much as new organizing, I think, because it, just, it seems like you would all be so exhausted that the exhaustion of, of you know, trying to get to a union um, just feels like it's really impressive to me that, that so many healthcare workers have gone through that in the last couple of years. The hardest part, I would say, probably in the beginning. Um, so you have to be very secretive when you are kind of organizing to do that union vote. Once the vote has happened, things can be a little more out in the open. Um, but that underground kind of phase of unionizing is so important because um, if the employer finds out during that phase, they have much more power to do something about it, um, whether that's disciplining someone or retaliating in some sort of way, um, shutting down the efforts by union busting. That's a very critical period to be secretive um, until you get to that vote. Tell us about getting to the vote. How did that go? It went really well. Um, we actually had 99% um, support Wow. with only one person um, that was in opposition to joining a union. No pressure or anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when was the vote held? Um, last October. So actually, it's been about a year, mm -hmm. almost to the date. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's another common story of how long it takes to get through bargaining after you win the election. Right. Yeah. And especially with that first contract, there's so much more to figure out um, versus already having a contract that's maybe just getting renewed or updated. Yeah. And so you've had a bunch of different actions in the workplace since the election. Do you want to tell us about some of the, the bargaining process and how that ended up leading to strikes? What were some of the sticking points in bargaining? So we do our bargaining on Zoom 
and there's the employer side and then the um, union side kind of thing. Um, and so we each have our own teams and a lead negotiator. Generally, it's about um, 10% of um, the bargaining unit. So at that point, I think we had about 80 workers. Um, so we had eight people on our bargaining team. And since then, we've had one you know, graduate. So we're down to seven. But we also had... Um, the Unity Senior Mental Health Coordinators join in to our bargaining um, just a couple sessions after we started. So they had about 40 in their unit at that time. Um, so they had four representatives. So together we kind of make up that uh, union side of things. One of the big, big focuses was safety issues. Um, so even prior to COVID, there were Issues with unsafe staffing, even when we had the staff to staff up. Um, and since since COVID, it's really, you know, we've had so many people leave that we aren't always able to appropriately staff our units. And that can lead to safety issues, big safety issues. You know, when we have kids that are going through such, such crisis and are really, really struggling, there might be, you know, that impulse to act out or someone becomes overstimulated and can't handle the amount of noise that's coming from the milieu or the unit or construction or any of that. Um, and so we can see some aggression, we can see some violence happen in those times. And what we really you know, want to do is be able to help that person have enough support for that person as well as the rest of the unit. So it becomes dangerous when we have support for that person but we might not have support for the rest of the unit. So we have kids that are unable to process what's going on that don't necessarily have that support. So it just becomes even more traumatic within a locked unit, you know, where they are stuck. Yeah. And I imagine even more traumatic for the people who are working and, and not being able to do what they know they need to do. Yeah. And, and, you know, a while back we did have quite a few injuries just kind of from this short staffing, um, and, you know, not appropriately staffing kids who have a high need for that connection and engagement. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we had some pretty serious injuries. Um, you know, some people were unable to return to mental health work after these injuries. Um, so a lot of like secondary trauma with staff um, throughout this as well. Yeah. And you were saying you had a lot of turnover also, a lot of people left. Yeah, we've had a lot of people um, more so lately leave the field for their own mental health. Um, just with the conditions, um, you know, things aren't the way we want to see it. It's not how our unit used to function. Um, so that can bring morale down and then having to deal with these, um, you know, different barriers to being able to care for our patients is very, very difficult for someone who is in the caring field and who really wants to um, make a difference. There's just not enough of us sometimes to make that difference. Yeah, I'm sure. And what was the the company's sort of response to this when you brought this up at the bargaining table? Um, so when we've talked about health and safety, we are actually still bargaining little pieces of that section. So that's non-economics, non-pay related. Um, so we have our whole economics, the pay related stuff left. Um, but we have this little, you know, piece of health and safety where we have been sharing stories and about, you know, things that have happened on the unit. 
um, noticing patterns like when someone has taken off a special staffing, um, but then still needs that staffing. Um, and the employer, it overall seems like they don't want to hear it, um, to be honest. And, you know, part of our unionizing as well was the respect. So when we share our concerns, um, are we being heard? And we were not feeling like we were being heard. Um, so that in itself can kind of reinforce the trauma and feeling like you don't have the support of someone who can actually do something about the situation. Yeah. Ugh, the the question of sort of what's economic and what's non-economic is always complicated too, right? Because obviously staffing is a money issue too, right? They, yes. they don't want to hire more people because they have to pay more people. Mm-hmm. Yep. And we've definitely seen that since COVID. I know, you know, the hospital is not where it's at, wants to be at financially. And so that's definitely impacted it. Um, and so for our for our strikes, we we did do a one day strike back in May of this year, um, and then we did a three day strike actually in the beginning of this month, October, um, and that all comes back to the respect, uh, patient and staff safety, and then retention is kind of that third point point where we want to provide staff with a living wage so they can continue to work in this job, and especially around inflation, uh, you know. Personally, I can't pay my rent on the uh, paycheck I get, even for like a whole month. So, you know, having to work extra has been very heavy on um, a lot of staff because we are expending a lot of energy just trying to keep the place together and trying to provide the best care that we can. Yeah. What are people currently making in terms of sort of range of salaries? Um, Our current wage scale is probably about 20 to 28 um, dollars per hour. Um, other four-year degrees start quite a bit higher, even up to like the 30 range. Um, and, you know, with that mental health is, and and psychology, you know, with a psychology degree, that's all very underpaid. Um, so the, the market wage is so, so low as it is that when our employer is saying, um, you know, we are offering fair wages um, in line with market wage, they're not, you know, expressing the part of market wage that's so low, where it's almost $10 lower than what maybe we should be making. Right. I mean, market market wage is uh, the result of employers like this one holding it down on purpose, right? Yep. And, and it, you know, it's hard because we have such diversity in our workforce, um, you know, diversity in race, culture, gender identification, age, everything. We, we are a very, very diverse group. So knowing that a lot of diverse groups and especially minorities, minority groups already have a lot of barriers in life. And then to have, you know, the company you work for add, add a little bit more barrier to that is, it's hard to watch and it's, it's hard to, you know, go to the bargaining table and not be very, very angry about it. Yeah. Yeah. And you would think that having a diverse staff would be really important in terms of mental health because you have people who can understand and relate to your patients in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, with a diverse staff, it it gives us the ability to kind of meet many different diverse patients where they're at. Yeah. So tell us about, I guess, um, getting to the point of the first strike. What was it like to um, make that decision? You know, I've never had done anything with the union prior to this. So seeing what goes into organizing a strike is is interesting and 
you know, we, we've had issues with the employer not giving us, you know, enough bargaining dates or stalling during negotiations. And so striking, it, it almost gives you a little bit of that power back saying, okay, if this is how it's going to be, then we don't have another option. Um, so going into that, you know, was, it felt powerful um, and a little bit exciting. Although, you know, in the end, we would have preferred to be on the unit with our patients giving that care. Yeah, but, you know, that is something that, uh, well, they don't leave you a lot of choice. Right. Yeah. At some, at, you know, at a point, it just becomes kind of what has to be done. Yeah. So you said the first strike was in May. Um, mm-hmm. Did you see any changes after you came back to work from the strike? Um, the bargaining session session after uh, the employer was pretty upset. So not a lot, of, a lot of progress was made there. However, the next session is where more progress started um, to kind of come through and things started moving a little bit more again. Um, and then, you know, leading up to our October strike earlier this month, um, just seeing more stalling and kind of the employers not coming to the table um, and really even bargaining anymore. It's, it's, you know, we get these proposals returned with, we're not interested in what you have to say, or, you know, we don't, we don't make any movement. We don't agree with anything you've given us, which is hard, um, especially when they're not willing to have the conversation about maybe why or what would be better for them or what they would be willing to accept. Um, It's a lot of just like, nope, 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 we don't want that. um, And we're not going to talk about it. Yeah. And so that strike was, I guess, a couple of weeks ago now that we're talking, where are things now? What are, what are you guys looking at at this moment? So we have had um, one more bargaining session since the strike. And unfortunately, our employer did not even want to see us face to face and only communicated through the mediator. And they moved a little bit um, on some of the yearly percentages for raises, but, you know, overall still, still very, very rigid and not wanting to have discussions, not, not even wanting to see us. Um, so looking forward, we do have another um, bargaining date on November 2nd and then again on November 30th. So hopefully, you know, in, in those sessions and like in the time between, we can kind of figure out like a way to hopefully get some agreements. Cause really it would just be better for everyone if this, this contract was settled. <sighs> Um, it's so frustrating, right? It just, it gets to me and I'm not even the one, uh, doing it. Yeah. I just can't get over the, the sort of unwillingness to even meet. Yeah. It's, it's not hard to believe anymore because, because we've been bargaining for like this, you know, almost I think 10 months now, because we started bargaining in January yeah, it's it's been a long ride. It's been a long ride, but lots of learning on the way. Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about sort of the healthcare system, right? And the the experience, I guess you said you work in in the emergency room, you were in contact with other healthcare workers. Um what's the sense that you have of sort of how <laughs> how the system is working or not working after 2 years of of COVID? I would say as far as mental health goes, the system is not working. It is broken. 
and the the way to fix it kind of relies on the employer, which is makes it difficult to make progress and to even feel like you're kind of going anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose it's hard to feel like you're making progress if they won't even make eye contact over the bargaining table. Right. And it's, it's not the first time we've kind of seen that. I mean, I think we have mostly met face to face every time, but you know, there has been some reluctance, especially after our May strike as well. Um, with them being upset, it's, you know, they don't really even want to have a conversation with us. Um, and, you know, earlier in bargaining, we would tell more of those stories about violence and what was going on on the units. And eventually the employer came to a point where they said, we don't want to hear any more sob stories. We don't want to hear your lectures. And that like you know it's so insulting to hear because there's people there's friends there's coworkers humans getting hurt in this process and no, they don't want to hear it i imagine these people are not spending a lot of time on the floor with you yeah no we we unfortunately don't see them um very often on the floor um even though they um call themselves leadership there there sometimes is not that much of a leadership role that's actually going on yeah. And again, did COVID, like, I imagine that a lot of people who could work from home worked from home and left uh, those of you who had to do the hands-on work to sort of get on with it. Right. Yeah. So we're the ones on the floor um, and reporting, you know, safety concerns to the employer. And they're saying, oh, no, it's not not an issue or just kind of ignoring it because they aren't on the floor. They aren't seeing all these things. And um, during the nurses' strike, they were on the floor because they kind of had to be. And so that was very interesting to see, you know, management actually in the mix of the milieu, dealing with kids, um, talking to kids, that kind of stuff. Yeah. In terms of um, the sort of broader questions of, of how we provide mental health care for people and how people access it. Um, I was talking with a doctor recently who is from Italy, and he was in one of the hospitals that was at the real center of, of the pandemic early on. Mm-hmm. And he was saying that the way hospitals are set up is really to deal with things like heart surgeries and, and stuff like that, right? Or like sort of gunshot wounds or things like that are not contagious. And that when you get into something like a pandemic, it makes much more sense to actually have healthcare be more decentralized. Mm-hmm. You know, because bringing everybody who was sick into the hospital actually meant that like more people got sick. Right. And yeah, and so I'm wondering if there's anything that you're thinking about like that in terms of mental health care that like, does it make sense to do as much of this through the hospital? What kinds of, of outpatient care might help for people maybe before they get to you or after they're released from your care? What have you sort of learned that that has changed the way you think about mental health care? A lot of times, just because that access, there are barriers to access. Um, it's hard for kids to get even a therapist prior to coming to us. So sometimes it is that weight and not having those services that amplifies it into a crisis. And we see kids after the crisis or we see patients um, after a major crisis, maybe a suicide attempt, um, some serious stuff. Um, and so when they come to us, um, we really, our job is to kind of stabilize and then to discharge to further care, to home with a plan, um, that kind of stuff. But unfortunately, another thing that we're seeing is patients 
who have a high level of crisis and are going through a lot of different things are not finding placement. Um, so, you know, different group homes or outpatients are saying, no, we, we won't take that person. Uh, maybe their behaviors are, are a little more severe. Um, maybe there has been assault charges in the past. You know, there's different reasons. Um, but we, we don't have enough, like, on the mental health continuum to really to really help. Um, so we might discharge people to outpatient or a group home, and they might come back the next week um, due to having a crisis at the group home. Um, I think having hospital, you know, people coming to the hospital for mental health care, I think the group setting can be nice um, so that, you know, patients know they're not alone. They have a chance to talk to other people, get other perspectives. Um, but it would be nice if there was something before us, before the crisis, um, you know, where, where people could just check in with someone or talk to someone. Yeah, I guess following from that, like what would the hospital that you work in look like if it was designed by you and your coworkers rather than, than the people who won't look at you at the bargaining table? I mean, it would just be a, wor- a world of difference, um, even even down to kind of our programming. So like we don't get a lot of resources to actually do programming. So like leading groups revolving around um, skills or that kind of things, like different mental health topics. Um so just putting more into mental health care, like if I was able to and if I had the money to, just putting that money in there because really just cut after cut for these budgets, it's it's not making the treatment process any easier for these kids. I believe just personally a lot in art, art therapy. Um, we do have occupational therapy, but more of those creative expressions um, and just more funding for, you know, staff to be there to, you know, be secure in their job and not have issues outside of work that they're bringing in. The focus would just be much more about whole person care, which Alina says, you know, that is kind of their focus. However, I do see, you know, multiple different ways and how we could be doing that better. Yeah. Being part of the union with other healthcare workers around Minnesota and, and beyond, um, has that been, I don't know, a source of support for you in all of that you're going through and, and thinking about, you know, continuing to be a healthcare worker in the future? Yes. Um, I mean, personally for me, the union has been incredibly supportive. Um, it's, you know, opened opportunities for learning and in so many different things. You know, I've had the chance to speak to um, the lieutenant governor, the governor, and the attorney general just within kind of the last couple months. So being able to express what's going on and have someone actually listen, that is something that's missing so much in our work. So being able to talk to people who have a little bit more power, who have that different perspective of how things are going. Um you know, and just just having other like-minded people. Um, prior to unionizing, there really was no one sticking up for us um, besides ourselves. And, you know, that can only go so far with an employer. So many of us have felt, I believe, much more support. Um, and having someone that's saying, no, you know, like, 
this is wrong and we we do need to listen to these staff. They're the ones, you know, with patients every moment of their shift. Yeah. Excellent. Um, yeah. Is there anything else you want people to know about your work, the union, all of it? I think it, it's important to continue providing like education and talking about kind of what's going on in mental health, because it really is um, not something that a lot of people actually know what that process is, unless you've been through it or work in that field. Um, so just, you know, getting the community more involved in what is going on in the hospital, what does that look like, the problems, those kinds of things, because in the end, um, mental illness will affect the entire community. And we've kind of seen some of that in bed after, um, you know, murder of George Floyd, as well as the COVID pandemic, there's been multiple traumas kind of in the Minneapolis area and Minnesota area and, you know, globally. So, you know, getting the community on board with ways that we can maybe even pressure the employer to just do better, to do better and to give people the care that they need, you know, um, Alina, Alina has mission statements that say, you know, they want to provide the best care and stuff. So really, we and me as a community member, I want to see that because I want to see our community be able to heal, um, you know, be able to function in a way that it's not functioning at the moment. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was Kelly Benson, Senior Mental Health Coordinator at Alina Abbott Northwestern Hospital in Minnesota, speaking to my co-host, Sarah Jaffe. I'm struck by Benson's reflections on what mental health care would look like if the workers could control the workplace. It's not entirely radical to envision a healthcare system that empowers the frontline staff to design the treatment process and set the terms of their work. But that would require a kind of community-driven ethos of care that our current profit-driven medical-industrial complex could never accept. And that's why they've had to unionize and go on strike to claim some modicum of control over their work and the services they deliver. Yet it's clear that the malaise in the mental health care infrastructure goes far beyond Benson's Hospital, beyond Minnesota. Just last week in California, mental health care staff at Kaiser Permanente in Northern California ended a 10-week strike in which workers were demanding better scheduling and staffing levels to provide adequate care and curb high turnover. Across the country, frontline workers like Benson are having to absorb the excess strain that is being placed on the mental health care system by the pandemic, by waves of social trauma, and by the socioeconomic and racial barriers to access to care that so many marginalized communities have suffered. And often, the workers absorb this pressure in the form of toxic stress that may harm their own mental or physical health. The pandemic opened a brief window of empathy for healthcare workers in which politicians seemed to recognize the deficits in the system and even provided some general temporary relief. But now that people seem eager to move on from the pandemic and those aid programs are ending and politicians want to pretend it's all over, workers are still trying to hold together an unsustainable system with little support. Some of them might quit and others might realize that if they want to stay in the system, they need to organize to protect their rights as well as the standard of care they provide to their communities the quiet fight they're waging through their labor organizing is going to play a key role in determining how society will cope when the next crisis hits. That's all for this episode of Belabored. In the next part of the series, we'll take a look at organizing among another group of so-called essential workers, the delivery workers who helped feed their communities throughout the lockdown. So stay tuned.
Thanks for tuning in. Thank you to Natasha Lewis and Colin Kinnebarrow for helping us sound good. And please remember that if you want to support independent journalism like this, and if you want to support more in-depth reporting series like this one, you can go to our Patreon and also get a complimentary gift designed by Molly Crabapple when you become a monthly contributor. That's patreon.com slash belabored. And you can get all of our archived episodes at dissentmagazine.org. And we'd love to hear your feedback, especially if you were a pandemic frontline worker and want to share your experience dealing with the long-term impacts of COVID-19, or if you want to talk about how the pandemic has affected your organizing at your workplace. You can reach us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org, or you can find us on the Twitters at hashtag belabored. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. 